Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. This week, we featured our series, A World Without. We've talked about potential shortages of staples like water and soil, the surprising shortages of things like sand and burial space. To conclude the series, we move to the most modern of potential shortages, computing power. You might have seen headlines like this, computers will require more energy than the world generates by 2040. Peter Fairley is an energy and environment writer. He runs the Carbon Nation website and is a contributing editor at IEEE Spectrum. He wrote an article there last year about the ridiculous amount of energy it takes to run Bitcoin. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Good to be with you, Jerome. We're going to start here with Moore's Law. Could you tell us what, remind us, probably most people have heard of it, but uh, maybe need a little reminder on what it is and why it is important to this conversation. (laughs) Okay. So Moore's Law is, um, it's not so much a physical law as much as an an observation uh, that was was made that turned out to be quite uh, prescient and and, uh, held up well. Um, and, And it's that the number of transistors that uh, can be squeezed into an uh, electronic circuit would tend to double about every two years. And, uh, and that's held for several decades. Um, and that's the reason why, you know, today uh, hundreds of millions of us are walking around with, with smartphones in our pockets. Um, you know, chip makers have proved quite adept at uh, making their chips much, much smaller and more dense and, and with, with squeezing more transistors into those small spaces, uh, you get more computing power. All right, so that's slowing down, but what, how does that end up affecting energy usage? So it's slowing down um, because it's just getting harder and harder to, to uh, physically squeeze those transistors together and, and keep them running right. Um, and, and what that means for energy use is as, as chip makers made chips more dense and transistors smaller, uh, literally a smaller transistor required less energy to use and, uh, or to run. Um, and so you could uh, get a lot more computations while using less energy. It was, it was really a super win-win situation. Um, what's happening as that slows down, uh, and yet demand for more computation continues, uh, all of a sudden you're just having instead of making smaller chips, you're having to make more chips or bigger chips, and as a result, energy use is going to increase. So, in your article about Bitcoin and the ridiculous amount of energy uh, it uses to, um, you know, make bitcoins exist, um, explain how that works. It's it's a good good example. Yeah, it, it, and it's it's a little complicated, but I think we can slice through it. Um, essentially, you know, Bitcoin is is what they call a cryptocurrency. Uh, it's it's a currency that doesn't have a central bank. Uh, or you know, central controller. It it is controlled by its users, and some of those users um, do the the encryption computations required to to maintain the the ledger for the currency. Let's say, um, and they get rewarded with bitcoins. So when a, a round of of uh, adding to the ledger happens, 
about once every 10 minutes, and the, and the Bitcoin miner, the, the company or, or people out there who are running computers to do this, the one that wins that round gets awarded about a dozen Bitcoins, um, which, you know, today each of those Bitcoins is worth about $8,000, so that's a pretty nice little win. Um, and what, what's, ha- what, what's happened is that uh, as Bitcoin's value shot up, particularly last year, more and more people jumped in to do this mining. They built more and more computers uh, to do that. And um, essentially, you're, it's a kind of a computational arms race that's driving up energy use. Um, now, for, for the first five or six years of Bitcoin's existence, uh, that wasn't an, a big energy problem because the Moore's Law was, was doing just fine and the Bitcoin uh, computi- the equipment was getting better, more efficient. And so the, the amount of energy it took uh, was, was pretty flat, even though the, the number of computations was growing rapidly. What's happening now is that as that computational kind of efficiency taps out, um, we're seeing the energy use really, really rise. And at this point, it's equal to the electricity use of, you know, a small country. So Bitcoin is using as much energy as a small country right now. That's right. Uh, And I imagine with all these things that demand, um, I don't know, artificial intelligence, I would imagine demands lots of computation and would would increase our energy demands. There's all sorts of things that would increase energy demands like Bitcoin. That's true. And now, you know, we have to leaven that with the, the caveat that, that some of the computation um, enables us to do things more efficiently, right? So electronics, um, you know, have enabled uh, refrigerators to, to, to run uh, more smartly, for example. Um, so you can, even though you're the power going into the computation uh, might be increasing, the, the fact that you're doing those computations might be enabling you to reduce other aspects of energy use even more. I know in, in this area in Illinois, our energy use has been going down a little bit year by year, and mm-hmm. in spite of the fact that we're all using these, these gizmos and, uh, at, at a more rapid pace. Exactly. And, you know, that's to a large extent due to um, federal efficiency standards like the Energy Star program, which the uh, Trump administration had slated for <laughs> elimination um, incredibly. You know, the, these programs basically said um, you got to put a label on your appliances and you know, tell people how much energy they're going to use in a, in a year, and um, you can only put that, that energy star on if you're, you know, in the, uh, you know, the higher ranks of the performers. And we've seen... Uh, efficiency in, in all sorts of things, not even cars included, uh, have made some, some serious gains. The, the, the problem, and, and so that's why electricity use has gone down, uh, the problem is that, you know, when things get more efficient, um, we can also use them more often. Or, or you know, with automobiles, we've made uh, more efficient engines, and what's tended to happen is that uh, automakers have made bigger engines uh, that are more powerful. So you know you can you can.
squander your efficiency gains um, if you're not if you're not really thinking about the end goal. Um, and we really do need to think about the end goal because the the slight reduction in electricity use that you're seeing in Illinois is is simply not on the order of what is needed to you know, reduce carbon emissions and deal with climate change. I'm talking with Peter Fairley. He's an energy and environment writer, and we're discussing the possible shortage in computing power and energy that we're going to face in the future. In a few minutes, film contributor Milos Dalek will be here, and we'll talk about the new film, The King, about the self-destructive tendencies of Elvis and the United States of America. Stay tuned for that. Um, All right, so the situation we were facing in Illinois, where we've got a slight decrease in power, it doesn't, power usage, it doesn't happen everywhere. And some places with data centers and things that do a lot of computing, and um, most people have probably never gone to or seen a data center, but it sounds like they are gigantic energy sucks on a community and locate themselves uh, as close as they can to a cheap power source to 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 make them work. Um, what what kind of thing is going on there? So, uh, I mean, data centers are basically you know huge warehouses full of full of computers, um, and you know those computers uh, consume electricity, and they also put out a lot of heat, so they need to be cooled, uh, so they don't burn themselves up. Uh, so there's a, a big air conditioning bill. Um, so yeah, they they use a lot of power. Um, my sense is that uh, energy use from data centers in the U.S. has been fairly flat. Uh, that there, you know, again, there have been efficiency improvements, um, and so I'm not sure that that's a you know something that we need to. Um, fold in here <laughs> <laughs> well and you know it, 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 i think in a way it's a there, there is some part part of that is a good news story in the sense that the, the companies that run those like google um and uh apple and, and others have been fairly responsible corporate players um on the energy side they've been uh really leading the way in making uh big purchases of renewable energy, financing big solar and wind farms. Um, uh, so, I, you know, I, I don't want to beat up on them too much, to be honest with you. They can do more to to make their operations more efficient, and, and, uh, and you know, I hope they do that. Um, I don't think we're going to – I don't think that that's the biggest problem we face today. I think that the bigger challenge is, uh, in terms of energy, is, is really getting – off of coal as quickly as possible and and uh, ramping up renewable energy supplies and in that sense the sort of computing side of our economy um, has been playing a positive positive role well if we're going to be using more energy to do our computing is this a place where fossil fuels and nuclear can hang their hat and say well, we are your reliable power base. You can't store all this renewable energy. You need us if you want all this computing. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's a pretty specious argument that uh, we need to keep coal and nuclear plants running today to have a reliable power grid. Um, it's it's uh, an argument that's been rejected by the 
power industry itself and its experts. Um, it's really a political ploy uh, by the by the Trump administration and um, you know by some corporations that that are running those plants. Um, I think that I think it's well understood today that we can have a reliable system running on 100% renewable power. Um, there's a lot of work to get to that. I've got a, a cover story this uh, just last month in New Scientist magazine in the UK, basically outlining the steps required to do that. It's it's a it's a big lift, but it's it's on the order of the kind of thing our our, our civilization can do. You know, if we can put a a smartphone in the pocket of everybody uh, walking around America, we can solve this problem. It's not rocket science. All right, and but to the um it, when we when you read the headline that I started the interview with, computers will require more energy than the world generates by 2040. Um, <laughs> what, what do you you got? Re, renewables got that? I I think that that's hype. Um, to be honest with you, um, the you know I was looking back at some of the hype around Bitcoin itself. Uh, December 2017, Newsweek had a headline: Bitcoin mining on track to consume all the world's energy by 2020. Um, yeah. So um, you can't believe everything you read, um, and uh, you know in this case, it's. I think that's been overhyped. Um, it's it, you know I think what we need to worry about more and today is where does our energy come from? How can we all you know find ways to to use energy more efficiently? Um, and and I think. You know, to me, the, the fact that we are using so much energy on Bitcoin is really, uh, you know, proof that we have uh, skewed priorities, that we really, you know, haven't um, internalized the degree of, of alarm that we should uh, around uh, climate change. Um, and, you know, we need to, it is a challenge to move to 100% renewable energy. Um, yeah, but you know we can we can start getting there by putting the energy that we have in the right places. You know, earlier in the series about shortages, we were talking about water, and the person I was talking to made the point that we waste between twenty and fifty percent of our clean water just from leaky pipes and things like that. And I imagine we are wasting an enormous amount of our energy that we could save too. Absolutely. You know, when you run a, an automobile on electricity, um, it, it is you know, twice as efficient than running it on uh, a gasoline or a diesel engine, just because of the, the physics of uh, you know how you how you take one form of energy and turn it into motion. So that's just an example right there. Um, you know, if we can shift over to renewable electricity, there are a lot of uh, energy uses today that can be, uh, you know, we, we can have the same energy services like heating and transportation, but we can do it with a lot less total energy and a lot less carbon. Peter Fairley is an energy writer and uh, on an environment writer. He runs the Carbon Nation website and is a contributing editor to IEEE Spectrum. He wrote an article last year there about the ridiculous amount of energy it takes to run Bitcoin. Thanks a lot for joining us, Peter, and walking us through uh, the minefield of energy and computing. 
Thanks, Trev. After the break, film contributor Milo Stalik and I talk about the decline of Elvis and the United States of America. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our film contributor, Milos Stalik from Facets. Great to see you, Milos. Hey, Jerome. Good to be here. Today we are going to talk about a new film that's out at the Music Box and Wilmette Theaters. It is called The King. It is about the decline of Elvis and the United States of America. Here is a little montage from The King. You have no idea of how hard he hit American culture. I mean, it was just one day there was not Elvis, and the next day there was Elvis. Mike Tyson, somebody said, he hit you so hard he changes the way you taste. America never tasted the same after he hit. When Elvis came to Memphis, Memphis was the place. It was where all the traditions came together. Walking down the street, Elvis could hear every type of music. Black, white, it didn't matter. Memphis represented the confluence of all these cultures. In the songs like The Power, when I talked about Elvis was a hero the most, it was absolute truth. He was called the king of rock and roll, which I I took offense to because he wasn't no more of a king than... Little Richard, no more of a king than Bo Diddley or Chuck Berry. Some comparison between the, I hate to say fall, but the rise and decline of Elvis with the rise and decline of America. Well, do you think we're in decline? No. I think we're stagnant. That's all. You think America's had better days? Oh, yeah. Hey. Eugene, I grew up with the great lie of all, you know. Work hard, you can get ahead. Work hard, you can get ahead. It was was a lie. They lied to everybody. Elvis is about to OD. If Elvis is your metaphor for America, we're about to OD. If it's out in the open that people can just buy a candidacy, we're on the brink of the destruction of our democracy. That's a little montage from the film The King, which is at the Music Box and Wilmette Theaters. The director is Eugene Jarecki, and he is on the line with us now. Thanks for joining us, Eugene Jarecki. Thanks for having me. Hi, Eugene. You know, so looking, knowing your filmography, which includes Trials of Henry Kissinger, Why We Fight, which is about the military-industrial complex, uh, Reagan, The House I Live In, which is about the war on drugs, at first sight, hearing that the king is about Elvis Presley seems like a real departure, but in another way it isn't. So how did you, what was the journey that brought you there? 
Well, all of my films have been preoccupied with the American dream and very often with the shortcomings in the American dream that everyday people face. You know, my family are a family of refugees. We fled Nazi Germany to come to America. We fled Russia to come to America. So the American dream was this beautiful beacon across the sea. But when we got here, um, as sensitive people, we would be lying to ourselves. We weren't uh, aware that the American dream was an unfinished story, that it wasn't for everybody. It, w- it was really for white men. It wasn't for black people. It wasn't for women. And my whole career has been devoted to trying to make the American dream deliver on its promise and to demand um, of ourselves that we sort of stand up for a country of the people, by the people, for the people, for everybody. And so this was an extension of the previous films, but it actually moves closer to the heart of the American dream itself, I think, than I've done before. Because, because Elvis is where in the American dream? He lives there. He's the epicenter of the American dream. There's never been anybody more closely associated with that um, hope and ambition we all have, that any of us could come out of nowhere and simply on the strength of our talent, our perseverance, our passion, um, be understood for who we are and be given a chance for who we are. And uh, he represents that. Now, there are some shortcomings in that that he also represents um, by no fault of his own. And we became uh, focused as well on that. Now, the film has Elvis's Rolls Royce, and you drive around with it and see a lot of different people, and they're, they're in the back seat, and you film them and drive. And I like the geographic progression that the film takes from Tupelo to Memphis to New York to Hollywood to Los Angeles and um, Las Vegas. It, Las Vegas and the, the, the whole, the, the, the penultimate Las Vegas. The, uh, it's it, it's it's a mirror of uh, how much Elvis was buying into America and how much it was killing him at the same time. Yes, and, and Elvis's progression, the reason we followed that kind of life trajectory of Elvis is that it's very much the life trajectory of the country itself. You know, we are a country born in the rural experience, just like Elvis is in the small town in Mississippi. And then we do rise to that kind of first murmurings of where democracy and capitalism meet in places like Memphis, which Chuck D in the film describes as really having been the center of everything in America because of the trade routes in the Mississippi River. And then we sort of travel northward through Nashville, where Elvis starts undergoing changes as America's doing. Then we explode in New York City, where our beam, our, our signal is beamed out to, you know, the far corners of the earth in this kind Kind of American imperial moment, where as Mike Myers says in the film, what the British once did with the three-masted ship and how they ruled the world, or the Romans with the Roman phalanx of gladiators, uh, what we did uh, was uh, to rule the world with the moving image, and Elvis is sort of so much a part of that. So at every point along the way, and we could continue to Las Vegas and Los Angeles and Hollywood, you know, every stop along the way, Elvis not only is going through an interesting transition himself that I thought was very poetic, but he's also reflecting constantly the country. He is the country. He is us in our own evolution through all those phases. So the kind of the two controversial points in the film, First, the first one is Elvis's reliance and appropriation, as, you, as people in the film call it, of black American music, of rhythm and blues. 
Well, there's a debate in the film whether that's appropriation or whether, as Chuck D so beautifully says in the film, culture is culture, and we should all want to see people share each other's culture. Chuck D, who famously described Elvis as a racist in the song Fight the Power, makes a very clear case in this film of why he did that, and it is not because Elvis played black music. In fact, Chuck loves that. He describes that he himself, the, the public enemy itself, was brought into national uh, uh, into the national limelight by the Beastie Boys. So the mingling of black and white and the cultural sharing um, that brings us all forward is something that I think Elvis is to be praised for, and Chuck D praises him in the film. Um, the charges about what the white music industry does to black people and how the white music industry has stolen black music, elevated white artists, and kept black artists back, that's a story that needs to be repeated over and over until this country stops doing it. Um, it's the name of the game in, in a system that has very, very systemic racisms built into it. Um, that's where the film, I think, gives a sharper, perhaps a sharper and more precise set of arguments about racial appropriation, and it doesn't blame Elvis for it. It blames the system. There are further charges about where Elvis may have dropped the ball on race or been sort of fallen short of what, what one might idealize. I thought, the, I thought Van Jones was very good on that. He's amazing on that, and, and the conversation between him and Chuck D is, again, a very precise one, where what they then say is, look, it's clear how Elvis was helped by black America, by black American music sort of coursing through his veins and coming out through his pelvis and his incredible dancing and his incredible talent. We get it. He, he was marinated in the black experience, and it comes out in his music, and he's, he, he sets the world on fire. But then, where is Elvis when the black community needs him? And they need every bit of help they can get in the civil rights movement to change this country. And Elvis sort of demurs at that time. He's an internationally known celebrity, and he does what celebrities sometimes do. Oh, I don't think I should comment. And I think it's there where people who have come to understand that it was beautiful that Elvis was close to the black community, then think, well, then why wasn't he there for the black community when uh, his brothers needed him? We're talking with Eugene Jarecki about his new documentary, The King, about the demise of Elvis and the United States of America. It's at the Music Box and uh, Wilmette Theaters. Um, Milos, do you have another thought? Well, and, th and then one of the things in the trajectory, of course, is towards the end of the film that Elvis becomes kind of a caricature of himself because in a way, and you, you address some of these issues of how he becomes actually a part of the musical factory. I mean, he's being exploited by uh, the Colonel Parker who managed him. Uh, you know, of course, he, he, drug addiction is a factor in here. So he becomes kind of a tragic figure. He does. Mike Myers talks about his shift in understanding Elvis as a tragic figure, um, where he once was everyone's, you know, golden ray of sunshine in this democracy. And I think as that, Elvis is a metaphor for the compromising of our democracy by capitalism. Uh, Elvis's beauty, his authenticity, the purity of his of the people by the people appeal uh, is ultimately compromised by the forces of power and money. It's why the car we drove across America is his 1963 role. Royce. We could have taken a Cadillac, we could have taken a Thunderbird, something that would warm our hearts at the, simple, at the simpler times of the 1950s, but A, it wasn't so simple back then, and B, the Rolls-Royce is the fitting car to take across the country because it's where Elvis ended up. It's a monarchic car, it's the car fit for a king, and in Elvis's case, a very lost king who I think, you know, I get the feeling he's always driving through that car, looking out the window, kind of hoping we're headed back to Tupelo, but instead we just keep pressing 
moving faster and faster on toward a demise in Vegas. And that's the American story right now until we stand up and demand that this country stop putting power and money before everything else. Well, and the one telling thing about the Rolls Royce is that it's constantly breaking down, including in the film. Yes, it does. And uh, we, we didn't want to lie about that. So we thought showing the viewer the, the breaking down of the car would sort of also help people make the metaphor their own and sort of get in get into the journey as the fun musical road trip that it is. Because in the background of all this, we have some very deep love and concerns for America, very deep love and concerns for Elvis. But in the foreground, it's a kind of madcap musical road trip in his Rolls Royce across a country that's full of hot and cold and valleys and mountains and snow and ice. And in all those conditions, you know, it is just a grand old lady of a British car and it's going to have its challenges with that. And I thought that was part of the love letter we were trying to write to this massive country that, that even a mighty Rolls Royce is no match for its grandeur. We're talking with Eugene Jarecki about his new film, The King. It's at the Music Box and Wilmette Theaters. One of the things I didn't realize was that Elvis never toured internationally. He was handcuffed to Hollywood for 10 years, and then he was handcuffed to Vegas uh, the rest of his life and never left the country. He seemed to want to, and it was Colonel Tom Parker's fault. And, and But that makes him all the more American of a, a hot box, uh, of a Petri dish. Yes, and then he once again represents um, the American story and in yet a new way. You know, he becomes the face of the American military empire at the end of World War II when America is flexing the muscle to be an empire and to keep a permanent military establishment, as Eisenhower called it. And Elvis becomes the poster child of that. Drafted during relative peacetime and interwar time, he's sent to Germany where he's the mama's boy. You know, he loves his mama. He actually loses his mama the year he goes abroad. So he's this sort of orphaned mama's boy who loves his country and answers the call when he's asked to join. And as that, it's one of the first steps in when you see Elvis really losing his sovereignty, losing his agency and becoming a puppet of others. In that case, a puppet of Uncle Sam. Then he comes back and he's a puppet of the movie business and a puppet of the Vegas industry of of sort of overpaid, uh, ever more lost and searching artists. You know, he does lose his power. And John Lennon, I think, said it best when he said, you know, when Elvis went over sees and joined the military. They gave him a crew cut. They cut off his sideburns. But John Lennon joked it looked like they cut off something else as well because he came back quite an emasculated figure. As his best friend in the film, Jerry Schilling, says, he sort of went away John Wayne, a rebel taking on the system. And he came back. I mean, I'm sorry. He, he went away um, uh, James Dean, a kind of a rebel uh, taking on the system, you know, a, 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 a character who's really threatening the status quo. And he comes back John Wayne. He comes back a, a, a sort of hood ornament of the great American power, the great American establishment. And I think he he never really gets free of that again. Tries. Where do you turn in your film career after this? Have you done uh, Henry Kissinger, uh, the military industrial complex, and Elvis? Well, I think we're entering a new time. You know, the, I'm so touched that we have not, in this whole conversation, mentioned the figure in the White House who's causing so much of an undermining of American values right now and of global values of decency. But And let's leave him largely out of the conversation. But what I have noticed is during this time period, which is obviously such a fraught time period, such a painful time period for America and the world, 
what we have seen is the birth of some of the most significant social movements in my lifetime encounter reaction to how problematic he is. So we've seen Me Too, Time's Up, the Parkland students staring down the NRA, the Poor People's Movement, teachers striking in red states that haven't seen a strike in decades. Um, you know, today I learned that collective bargaining has caused Disney to agree to pay its uh, workers minimum wage. All these motions that are for a more regulated, more fair society society that isn't just a robber baron getting away with murder society. Those are glimmers of democracy. Those are glimmers of us getting back to something sane, decent, the kind of thing that made us the greatest, most powerful nation on earth. Well, that's something to look at and realize maybe the next things that people like me should do are examples of heroism, examples of standing up to the system, examples of um, making the road by walking in a democracy. And it's not that I don't do that. And I think there are people in this film who exemplify that from Chuck D to some of the extraordinary performers in the film. But I'd like to do some work next where people could look at it like my kid and like I was when I was young and see, hey, there's It's a Wonderful Life or there's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. That's what it looks like to be a member of a community. That's what it takes to sacrifice to keep democracy healthy. Eugene Jarecki is an American uh, director, documentary filmmaker, and his latest movie is The King. It's showing at the Music Box and the Wilmette Theater right now. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, we're here with film contributor Milo Stalik, and this week on Worldview, we've been talking about uh, shortages in our series, A World Without. And Milos has been doing some serious thinking about shortages in films because there are films that have shortages as as a concept. Yeah, and and it's interesting because in a way the shortages in film fall into three categories. And the best of these categories are documentaries because narrative film really needs a good guy and a bad guy. You know, Pauline Kael famously said, kiss, kiss, bang, bang, but it's also the good, you know, good versus evil is always the dramatic narrative. So in in a way, just showing people who have shortages is kind of a very depressing down movie without having a conflict there and dramatic conflict. Documentaries cover this ethical area the best, and there's a number of them, obviously, in Inconvenient Truth, the Al Gore documentary, but there's... Um, a very wonderful documentary called Blue Gold, which has to do about the privatization of water and the control of water, the water supply. Darwin's Nightmare, the film by Hubert Sopper, which tells about the food disaster in Africa by introducing fish into Lake Victoria. Which that that is the, such an amazing which story. Which then kills the lake, right? It's an astonishing story. You know, or King Corn, which is about genetic engineering of, of crops. Uh, Bitter Harvest, which is an interesting documentary about the GMOs in India, which leads to massive farmer suicide side in India as their uh, seeds are taken away by uh, introduction of Monsanto or End of the Line, which is about overfishing. So these kinds of large topics, documentaries handle very well, whereas narrative films have a more difficult time with that because then if you look at fiction films, you're really left with two, two types. One is where it's a class-driven shortage, right? So it's like people who are very poor and who are being disenfranchised by capitalism, by overzealous landlords, by the system. The original Silent Zorro was like that. Yes, and Grapes of Wrath, of course, which is the Depression, Our Daily Bread, which is a very early film by King Vidor in which drought plays a, a big role. The neorealist films, you know, like La Terra Trema, which is the foundation of Italian neorealism by Lucino Visconti, which is about the poor Sicilian fishermen who are being exploited. Or the Des 
Cascaden, a film by Akira Kurosawa, from which he was very seriously criticized and really went left Japan and, uh, as a reaction, which is about poor people living in the slums of Tokyo. Obviously, the Japanese did not like to have Tokyo slums being shown in a Kurosawa film. And so he went to exile in Siberia. One of the characters in that incidentally dies from scavenging for rotten, from, for rotten fish. So yeah. you have that whole genre of films of, of poverty. And then, of course, we're left with the apocalypse, the post-apocalyptic film, science fiction, in which somebody in the world screwed things up so badly that we are now left to scrounge Forever. Soylent Green being a very famous example. A more recent one, Snowpiercer, the Bong Joon-ho film, Korean film, in which a luxury train is just rushing through the ice and snow with Tilda Swinton on board after a global experiment went bad. All right. Uh, Milos Stalik weighing in on some of the uh, interesting shortage films out there, and that uh, was really going to conclude our World Without Week and uh, what kind of impact it has on films and the drama there. Thanks a lot for joining us, Milos. It was great to talk with you. Thanks, Jerome. Great to be here. Coming up after the break, we'll have Weekend Passport, and we'll find out about the new production of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our global citizen friend Nari Safavi gives you a tour of some of the global doings in and around town. Great to see you, Nari. Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again. Where are you taking us first? We're first going to India, and Kaluastav is a, actually a cultural event organized at the Harris Theater, and it's happening Sunday, July 29th, starting at 2 p.m. Council General of India is organizing this cultural event, and it's free and open to all, so it's a, it should be an interesting thing to take the kids to see. It's a lot of uh, Indian dancing and music, and it's absolutely, absolutely free Sunday at 2 at the Harris Theater. Yeah, also, uh, we're going to go to Ghana, and we're going there's a Ghana Fest going on at the Washington Park tomorrow, Saturday, and the Ghana National Council of Chicago and its affiliate organizations are putting that event on at the Washington Park tomorrow. And this is the 30th anniversary of Ghana Fest, and that's a pretty awesome thing. They have a parade of kings or uh, chiefs there, and it's a it's a fun or fun thing. 5,000 people come every year there at Washington. Exactly. It's amazing that Chicago has had the Ghana Fest going on for 30 years now. And last but not least, we're going to go to Pamplona, Spain. And uh, there is a, the Goodman Theater is having uh, this one-man show by Stacey Keach, you know, who had a little issue uh, with his health uh, last time when he tried attempted to do this role about Hemingway in his last few years. Uh, of his life. And I saw the show and I really liked it and I really enjoyed his interpretation of it. It's worth seeing it. It will be going on for a couple of more weeks. 
don't miss it. Uh, what was revealing for me was that uh, Hemingway, actually, who was a son of Chicago and Oak Park, is how much his life was influenced. He was caught kind of in between uh, the dealings of with Castro in Cuba while he was living there. And he was so much of a Democrat, even though he was a leftist. He was a Democrat where he got in trouble with Castro. And Castro was threatening to confiscate his home and his properties in Cuba. And then he would come to the United States and he would be caught by J. Edgar Hoover because he was too li- he was too liberal, he was too leftist. So it was kind of like this world of being a progressive but being a Democrat at the same time was very fascinating. And also he admits, the character admits at one point that he learned a lot, his gift with, with words, a lot came from influences of Gertrude Stein in Paris. And that's what he actually admits to at one point in this day, in the theater, in the in the play. But then later on denounces Gertrude Stein and saying that I taught her everything that she knew. <laughs> so A man of contradictions <laughs> would be putting it generously. Exactly. <laughs> a man of many, many contradictions and kind of almost by polar kind of a going back and forth in between his life. He, you never really quite have a grip on him, but uh, he's a very interesting character. It's worth seeing it. It's there for a couple more weeks. Stacy Keaches Hemingway at the Goodman Theater, and we are going to stay in a theatrical vein and talk about the new Looking Glass Theater presentation of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. The lead is Captain Nemo, and he's played by Kareem Bundiali, and here he is as Captain Nemo. My name is Nemo. I am captain of this vessel called Nautilus, and I am the law. There he is as Captain Nemo, and here he is sitting at the table with us. He doesn't like hearing himself as Nemo. No, it's terrible. (laughs) Hi, Jerome. Thanks for having me. Uh, One of the things people are missing out on is your great facial hair that you get to grow for Captain Nemo. Right. This is outstanding. The the, the curly beard and everything. Uh, Uh, I've been working on it since I was eight. Uh, (laughs) I I started growing facial hair very early, and so um, uh, I'm able to do it at the drop of a hat. If anybody wants to hire me for that purpose, I'm available. And you got the perfect little curls and the mustache Thank and you. everything. Nari saw the show and, and really loved it. Yeah, I absolutely loved it. And some young members of my family saw it and they absolutely loved it. Even It's accessible even to five, six-year-olds. And it is really a, a show about a character who is the main character in the, uh, in the play. It turns out to be a South Asian. Uh, and it reflects the whole... Uh, issue of Jules Verne, you know, dealing with with sciences and enlightenment and people being technically gifted and the dawn of a new era where we can travel under the sea. But yet this Asian, South Asian character, an Indian prince who is anti-imperialist and is, but yet is gifted with the tools of enlightenment, goes on, goes berserk with this sort of experiment that he is doing and trying to live his mission. It's uh, fabulously captured and rendered by the entire team at The Looking Glass, but also Karim does a magnificent job. Thank you, Nari. What did you think about this role when uh, you considered it? I imagine a lot of people don't wake up in the morning and say, wow, 20,000 leagues under the sea, I can be Captain Nemo? Right, yeah. Um, (laughs) You know, in earlier versions of the script, we, we stuck... Uh, David Kersner was working on it alone, the director and ensemble member who um, who's responsible for bringing this to us. Um, 
in earlier versions, we kind of were pretty faithful to the actual 20,000 Leagues Under the Seas. And then uh, after a few iterations, um, Steve Pickering, who goes by Althos Lowe as the, um, as the author of our current production, uh, got a hold of it and did a mashup of Mysterious Island and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And that is when... I learned about um, Nemo's South Asian background. He wasn't allowed, apparently, Vern, to to comment on any background for Nemo in this anti-imperialist kind of tale um, when he wrote 20,000 Leagues because uh, the publishers were afraid that book sales would drop in other countries. You know, yep. There's a little nod to that in yeah. the show. Yeah. But uh, closer to the end of his career, when he writes Mysterious Island, he says, forget it. I'm going to do what I want. And he gives yeah. Nemo's backstory as, as being South Asian. So, How is it an anti-imperialist tale? Because I think most people are, are familiar with it, the movie version, which it's an adventure tale, essentially. Right, yeah. yeah. Well, um, uh, I think in our version and in the book, um, it is clear that Nemo is sort of a misanthrope and he's done away with... with um, um, I guess traditional human culture. Um, we learn in Mysterious Island that since he is a son of the um, of the uh, of the it, the first war for Indian independence, basically in 1857, um, that he has a personal grudge and stake against the British for for basically subjugating his people. Um, this is not something that's apparent in 20,000 Leagues, but it is hinted at that he's sort of um, uh, he comes from a sub from from a subjugated culture, basically. Um, that, I mean, there's adventure, there's ecology, there's there's science. Um, but what drives him is is the the need to create a new world for himself, basically, you know. Escape the old yeah, one. you can actually look at it as uh, as a sort of a, a personal kind of a thing that he is coming back and he is uh, doing a, creating a new world for himself. Yeah. But there is also, I think, Jules Verne was kind of getting at this sort of a, a idea of Western imperialism and the tool of enlightenment and modernity mm-hmm. going to these and uh, to these new nations, underdeveloped nations, mm-hmm. and kind of saw the dangerous mixture. Yeah. of the Enlightenment and imperialism mm-hmm. going to these countries. Yeah. And he's kind of basically telling us, he's kind of forewarning us of Al-Qaeda and these other things that when you take these tools of Enlightenment, but you try to subjugate these people too, yeah. at the same, it's going to be a blowback and you have Blow absolutely no face. idea what's yes. coming back at you. Yeah. And uh, and Captain Nemo is one of the parts of that Western yeah. blowback. In that way, it's very relevant, I think, our telling of the story to a lot of what we what we're seeing on the global stage today, you know, and so I think a lot of people will find um, find it very uh, relevant, prescient um, story. Yeah, um, it's also interesting that you know, in this, <laughs> in the attempt to create a new world for himself, a world uh, divorced from from the the folly of mankind. He basically ends up becoming a megalomaniac. He does. He does. Which might say something about Verne's idea of what a human being is and what, exactly. uh, what we can't escape, you know? I mean, 
Oh, Absolutely. darn. Yeah. <laughs> so, whoops. I was hoping to escape that yeah. one. So, so w- what was your approach to the role, your creative process? Can you tell us a little bit about how you prepared for this role? Well, I mean, I, I, I studied up as much as I could in the short time that I had to do it about, um, about the rebellion and about, about, I mean, there were things that I already knew about British colonialism in India, being a South Asian myself. But, I tried to approach this role um, as a new one. I mean, Nemo is a storied character, and right. everybody has expectations. Maybe James Mason has helped to create those. Um, but, um, but it is a new work, uh, and it is a new telling. So I have to treat it like a new story, and I can't, I can't do that in a vacuum. So all the people involved in it... Uh, um, Sully Ratke, the costume designer who was instrumental in, in crafting the look of Nemo. Amazing, you know, yeah, it's really well done. Yeah, she's really, really talented. And David Kersner and St- Steve Pickering and all those folks um, really helped to guide what my interpretation would be. And um, at the same time, left enough space for me to explore and for me to suggest, you know, things. Yeah. And um, it's uh, it, it's never... Every every role is different, and every process for every role is different because every story is different. Yeah. We're hinting at the same thing in the end, you know, what links us together. But yeah, and the costume design and uh, and the way that the props and the, uh, that you have it set up, where people are basically sitting around what is considered to be a contraption that's really like the it's the submarine yeah. that's traveling and uh, yes. and how uh, it, you, the, the, it's amazingly well designed and it's amazingly uh, interesting for young people to observe it's yeah. really designed to capture your attention and the young people just kind of get engrossed in it yeah. so those have been some of our best audience yeah. members yeah folks, it's nearly actually. immersive I would say yeah, yeah. Is it exhausting playing a megalomaniac every night? I get the feeling from you personally that you're not like that. Yeah. You should see me at home, I guess. <laughs> um, I, um, you know, it's never exhausting if the audience is there with you, if the audience is listening. Right. And we've been blessed with some very amazing, attentive audiences. When they're giving you their energy, that exchange of energy from them to you, back to them... Um, is actually exhilarating and gives you energy. It's only on the nights when people are not feeling it that you feel like, oh my gosh, (laughs) what more can I do? Well, I hope a lot of people get to seeing Kareem Bundiali in the uh, Captain Nemo as Captain Nemo in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. It's there at Looking Glass Theater on Michigan Avenue. Um, Nari gives it a big thumbs up. Nari Safavi, thanks a lot for joining us on Weekend Passport. It was great to be here. Monday on Worldview, we're going to talk with an expert on blockchain technology for our series Puerto Reconstruction and listen to a BBC documentary about how blockchain is changing Puerto Rico. Hope you can join us Monday for Worldview. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.